Well, good morning, Branch Church, and good morning, Branch Church family online. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning. I'm really glad we continue our worship together through the hearing and the receiving of God's word, and as we leave here, by his grace, the doing of his word. Do people like light? Kind of a weird question, right? Do people like light? Well, I think it depends. If you're walking through a dark garage and someone turns the light on for you, I think you'll be very appreciative. Thank you very much. Who wants to stub their toe or smack their forehead into something? I sure don't. But if you're doing something shady in the dark, how do you feel about the light then? Years ago, I was a teacher and I was a chaperone at a high school dance. And it was a Christian school. So as far as I knew, at least at that dance, we left the lights on. And I had a group of students approach me and say, can we turn the lights off? Why do you want to turn the lights off? Whatever their reason, they did not want us to see what they were going to do in the dark. And you know, the interesting thing about the darkness is you may actually start to get so upset about the light that you verbally or physically come after the light. What are you doing in my space? Who invited you in here? Get out of here. And if you don't get out of here, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to make sure you never come back again. When the light shines, there are various different responses to it. It really depends on where you're at and where your heart's at. If you want to be guided by the light, you want to see where you're going, you'll be excited to have the light switch flipped on and to know where you're going to go and have clear direction. On the other hand, though, if you're doing something shady or where you're not supposed to be doing, you don't want to have anything to do with the light for fear of being exposed. Today, we are continuing at the Feast of Booths, kind of a part two here. Last week we left off, Jesus made this incredible pronouncement. We haven't looked at how they responded yet, we will. And then he will make another incredible pronouncement at the Feast of Booths. And we will also get to see how people react to that. And as we do that, as we look at John 7 and John 8 together, here's what we're going to learn this morning. That Jesus is the revelatory saving light of this world. Testified to by the Father. It's all important in that sentence. I couldn't just say light of the world. I had to explain it. The revelatory, saving light of the world. And that last part will be very important, his discussion with those who don't understand. The light that is testified to by the Father that is so significant. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 7, and we will pick up at the Feast of Booths again in verse 40. John chapter 7, verse 40, it says this, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, you know, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. Jesus just got done proclaiming to those who are thirsty, come to me and drink, that is believe. And when you do, you will have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Here's the response of the crowd. It's a mix. Some are like, yeah, prophet. No, no. Others are like Christ. Others are like, no, no, no. He's from the wrong region. And so we have a whole diverse responses from a measure of belief all the way to, no, this can't be it. He's born in the wrong place. Although at least that's what they thought. They really didn't know where he was born. They just knew where he grew up and where he was from. When Jesus speaks, there is division. If we as his followers are to abide in his words, remain in his teachings, and to share his words with others, what can we expect with those same words? 
I think we can expect division as well. I think some people will go, yeah, right on. We believe what you're saying. Others will be like, no, I don't think so. Some will be curious and ask more questions. And others would rather have Jesus arrested than hear one more word from him. Is it good that we know this? Is this a good thing that we know that there will be division when we speak the words of Jesus? I think it is. If we're not ready for this, something like this might happen. You know, I keep giving Jesus' words and all I get is kickback. Everybody's just kickback and they won't believe and they, I, I, I don't know what to do with it. Maybe, maybe there's not really power in his words. Maybe I need to use something else to get them to see the truth of God. Do you see how that just happened there? Well, maybe his words, maybe they're really not true. Maybe I need to go somewhere else and find words that are true because people just don't seem to be getting on board with the things I'm telling them. It's good that we know this, that Jesus's words will bring division because it enables us to persevere. You see, what did Jesus do? He taught the words of the Father. John is so clear. He does nothing of himself. When he speaks, he speaks what he hears from the Father. What he does is what he does because the Father has showed him. And if Jesus thinks it's good enough to just preach the Father's words, what about us? Absolutely. Where are power? Where is life? Where is spirit? It's in his words, not in ours. You see, the problem is not Jesus's words. The problem is people's hearts. And if, if they're not gonna listen to Jesus's words, which are life and spirit, do I really think they'll listen to mine and mine will be able to truly make a difference in their life? I don't think so. Years ago, 2013, so about 10 years ago, January, I went to a weekend Bible conference at Westminster Seminary here up in Escondido. And I think it was S.M. Baugh, professor, he got up and there's one thing that I took away that I, that's always stuck with me. I don't even know that I needed to necessarily write it down. It really stuck with me. He said this. He says, you will keep them with what you brought them in with. You will keep them with what you brought them in with. So if you bring them in with candy, it's gonna take candy to keep them. If you bring them in with a gimmick, it's gonna take a gimmick to keep them. But if you bring them in with the words of Jesus and the gospel, that is what will keep them and that is why they will stay. I think that is a great proverbial truth. Sure, there can be exceptions. God can still do his thing. But at the end of the day, where's power? At the end of the day, where is efficiency? It's Jesus's words and it's his gospel. As we're going through John, I believe in the words of Jesus, but they're really sinking into me even more. How about you? They're sinking in where I'm like, I don't even care. I'm gonna tell you his words because there's nothing I can say, no joke I can give, no smile I can flash that's gonna save your soul or make you feel better. You gotta know the words of Jesus. Again, that's why I love the little books of John. Get the words of Jesus in front of people. You've got to read it. If Jesus thought it was significant enough and enough to tell people the words of the Father, we must do the same, amen? That was the response of the crowds to Jesus's proclamation at the Feast of Booths, the first one. Now we're gonna have the temple guards and their response. And for some reason, this one just tickles me pink. So let's do it. The officers, that is the temple guards, then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him in? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So if we go all the way back to 732, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. There's this low level grumbling going on because everyone's talking about Jesus. So the Pharisees said, that's enough. Call the temple guards, send him in. You go arrest him and you stop this. And then they go 
and they come back and they're like, well, where is he? You had one job, one job. Where is he? And they're like, no one ever spoke like this guy. No one ever spoke like this man. The temple guards, they're not mercenaries. They're not going to be in the movie The Expendables. These are religious Jews, Levites, who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah stands up and speaks, his words, bam, penetrate their heart. And they walk away like no one has ever spoke like this. Now they haven't got to the level of faith. They don't understand his sonship as being the, the divine son of God. But they are at a level where at least for them, Jesus is higher than any man. No one ever spoke like this guy. You know why? Because there was no one ever like him. Fully God and fully man in their presence, speaking the words of truth. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, come to God. It's another thing to say, come to God and believe. It's another thing for someone to stand up and say, come to me and I will give you. The power and authority in which Jesus spoke was enough to stop these guys in their tracks. They're going to have a problem though. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Listen, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? The Pharisees go to what seems to be the tactic of peer pressure. <laughs> really? You guys are going to believe? Look at us. Look at all the people, the one who hold all the cards and the religious knowledge. Look at us. Do any of us believe in him like you're doing? No, I don't think so. What are you guys doing over here? And so peer pressure becomes this great tactic to get them to change sides or at least come to their side. I think the science community has done this tactic, I don't want to say very well, but they have done it for, I think, decades now with evolution. We're the guys, right, in the prestigious universities. We have the PhDs. We know what we're talking about. Why would you go over there to the church? Bunch of ignorant folks. We're the ones who have the truth. Evolution is really true. Oh, oh, maybe I did get it wrong. Maybe, and a lot of people in schools, they just go to evolution because they've never been taught otherwise because the guys who are smart are the ones who told them what to believe. But if you stop and question such a belief, if you look for evidence that backs up such a belief, you will find it is greatly wanting and the earth is much more clear that there's a creator who has designed everything. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1, the heavens, well, that's Psalm, no, that's Psalm 100, I'm getting my Psalm, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. What did Paul say? Power, I'm losing it. Help me out, Chuck. <laughs> yes, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. His power and his eternity are clearly seen. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let us not fall to the tactic of peer pressure. Christianity is true. Jesus really did live. His word can be trusted and it's been passed on for centuries. I don't know if you saw the devotion this last week. If you haven't read it, you can go on the website and read it. If you're on the app, you can go under where it says read and read it. It's a response to five ways in which someone is writing to say that Jesus probably never really existed. And it's good for us to be equipped in those things. It's good to read it again. It's good for me to read it again. It's hard to remember everything. Peer pressure, tactic number one. Let's see what else they do. Verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So the Pharisees tell them, you don't want to go to the side of the crowd, do you? Because if you do, these 
ignorant folks who are basically foreigners. They don't know the law. They don't do the law. They're a curse. They're under God's condemnation. You don't want to be on their side, do you? You don't want to fall over there. And so they result to name-calling and condemnation. You don't want to be on the side of the doofuses, do you? I saw an interview this week of a woman. I think she was from Sweden. And she was starting to be prosecuted for her use of scripture, I think, in the political sphere. And the Bible is getting this tag being called now hate speech. And I think it's only going to progressively get worse. The Bible is going to be called hate speech. You don't want to be on the side that hates people, do you? You know who also hated people? Hitler. You don't want to be a Nazi, do you? And so you're going to get these tactics where people are going to call you names and condemn you and force you into labels. And it's like, no, 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 no. Don't try to group me with that. It is not the same thing at all. Just because we don't agree with the sin does not mean we hate that person. The world's going to call us names. And I think the world's going to call our children and grandchildren even more names. We're going to be called anti-names. You're anti-LGBTQ. You're anti-love. You're anti-basic human rights. You don't want to be anti-human rights, do you? Oh, maybe not. No, they're framing the whole thing totally wrong. We, we don't agree with your sin. And we stand where God stands with sin. God hates sin and he hates that sin and we stand there. But it doesn't mean we hate you. We hate murdering, but we can still love murderers and pray for them and want them to be saved. It doesn't matter the names the world calls you. It matters the names that God calls you. What names has God called you? 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love is this? The Father has called us children and behold that is what we are do you realize in that term in that name child is everything you could ever want or need think about it what all comes with the title child father and what does a father do he protects he provides he takes care unconditional love he doesn't forsake he instructs, he disciplines, he guides, he is there for us. We are never alone. And as father, we have an inheritance as his child. Everything that's his becomes ours. You see, as a child in that name alone, you have everything you could ever possibly want or need. I'm reminded, go with me to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4.12, Peter warns us about how to think when someone might call us names. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't think it's weird or strange that someone calls you a name for following Jesus. It happened to the crowds back then. It happened to Jesus himself. It's going to happen to us. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised. Rejoice, because you're getting to share in the same things that Christ did. And if you share in his sufferings, what else will you share in? His glory, his resurrection glory. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? You are blessed. You are possessing the favor and the fullness of God. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, clarification, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't think you're going to be blessed for those things. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God that he bears that name. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. If you're insulted, you're blessed. 
Don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Wonderful things that we are taught to do if someone were to call you a name for standing on the words of Jesus. Now come back with me to John 7, verse 50. We've seen the crowd's response. We've seen the temple guard's response. Now we have a surprise interrupter. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, he said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus talks. This is significant because he's one of the Pharisees, so he's a part of the group. He's a main religious teacher at that time, right? He's the guy who also talked to Jesus in John 3 about Jesus telling him he must be born again of the Spirit. And he stands up, and he doesn't, he doesn't proclaim faith in Jesus, but he offers a procedural correction. Guys, aren't we supposed to listen before we judge? Guys, aren't we supposed to listen to what he actually says before we hastily judge him? Guys, what do you think? And what do they do? Another tactic. They come right at him. Where argument fails, they go right at him. What? Are you from Galilee too? You must be. You must be as you stand up and to defend this Galilean. What are you from that inferior stock too? D.A. Carson points out, when argument fails, people resort to contempt. They resort to coming right after you or to emotion because they have nothing else to stand on. You see, they're calling people ignorant. This crowd, because they don't obey the law, guess what they're doing? They're not obeying the law because they're not actually hearing Jesus out. They're just coming at him and trying to sack him. Jesus made this incredible proclamation. If you are thirsty, which we all are, if you need God, which we all do, if you are broken, which we all are, you come to me. And as the scripture said, I love this. Remember his words, the father's words. As scripture said, you will have rivers of living water flowing. You will have the personal life of the Holy Spirit and God inside of you. You will be child. You will be all those things we talked about. Jesus is now going to, or John is now going to give us the second proclamation at this feast, equally and wonderfully powerful in its own way. But before we do, there's something we have to talk about. In your Bibles, you'll see that John 7, verse 53, through John 8, 11, is probably marked off in some way. Maybe there's brackets. Maybe there's an asterisk or a footnote. And we have to talk about it. This is part of the reason why we go book by book, chapter by chapter, so you run into these things and we become equipped and we mature together. Now, there's a good chance that this story is true, but the textual evidence that, that is the manuscripts demonstrate to me that this is not a part of John's original gospel. I will give you four reasons why I don't think that it is. Number one, the earliest manuscripts and almost all of the earliest manuscripts do not have this story. It is lacking, which shows us that it looks like it came when? Later. We do find it in the medieval time manuscripts all over. And when we find it in those manuscripts, it shows up in five different places in the Bible. It shows up in four different places in John, and it shows up in one different, and it shows up in Luke. Now, based on that alone, it's really hard for me to believe that was a part of the original inspired manuscripts in which God has written and given to us. Secondly, can you put it on there? I totally forgot it. Thank you. 
many non-John type features. So if I were to write you a letter, I've been writing devotions for the church for some time, sent them out in the middle of the week. You probably get used to my style or my words. If there was a big paragraph in the middle where it started to sound like somebody who was from the East Coast, it started to sound like someone with a Jersey accent, if it started to sound like a Yankee fan who uses, who uses words a millennial has never heard of, you would probably go, that doesn't really sound like Sean. That sounds a lot like Pastor Chuck. And you would say, I don't know. Is that really Sean? Did Chuck write that part? So when we get to this section and we read these words, they don't match up with John's verbiage as much as the rest of the gospel. You can tell it looks a little different. In fact, it looks a lot more like Luke. It looks a lot more like Matthew or Mark and the way that the verbiage is being used. Thirdly, if you remove this section right here, you go perfectly from 752 to 812. It's a perfect seam. We're still at the same feast and all we have now is another proclamation. If you put it in, it's a little weird. We're in the feast and then we're not at the feast and we're somewhere else and then we jump back into the feast again. Can authors do that? Can they chronologize? Sure, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense again when you're weighing all the evidence together. And one more piece of evidence here is that no Greek father is commenting on this passage for the first 1,100 years of Christianity. If you take the Greek fathers and the things they have wrote and, dis and discussed scripturally, you can put together like 90, high 90% of scripture. We can almost reconstruct the entire Bible. And yet this passage is missing for a very, very long time. So could it be true? Did Jesus really do this? It's possible. I won't deny that. Do I believe it's part of the original? I can't based on these reasons that I've studied. So here's what I'm going to do. Now, this doesn't, make, this doesn't mean your Bible's not true. It doesn't mean that scripture, you can't trust it. This is just something that's marked off and it's something to be aware of as we go through. So I'm going to now go to verse 12 in chapter eight, where I think that the scriptures left off on. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. What does he mean? I'm a big light bulb. Is, he, is it an ontological statement? I am light. I am an actual light. No, this is a metaphor. And the metaphor means that light does what? It helps you to see. It is a revealing type of light that helps you to see the truth. So two things we see here about his light. Number one is he is the revelation of God's truth. In him, you see truth. In him, you see what really is true in the darkness. One of my favorite things about coming to Christ, I actually see the world the way that it is. I can actually understand the framework of where I've been, why I'm here, and where I'm going. Most people don't have that framework. For us to have it is incredible blessing. So much grace, amen? We actually know truth now because Jesus has spoken it to us as the light of the world. He continues though. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. There's a double negative in the Greek. He says he will know not. When you see no nots in scripture, they're very exciting because they're double emphasis. It's like this. You will absolutely not walk in darkness when you follow me, but you will have something, the light of life. Jesus is not only the revelatory light, the truth, he's also the saving truth. And when you follow him, you will walk out of darkness, out of the dungeon of sin, and you will come out to the world, you will see as it really is meant to be seen, and you will be saved from your sins. Two things make this proclamation even more exciting. So glad you asked. Number one, 
He's at the Feast of Booths. One of the things that they would do at the Feast of Booths is they would light these big kind of candles, if you will, four of them, likely in the court of Gentiles. And some say that this happened every night of the feast. I don't know for sure. Could Jesus have been saying it right when it was happening? Maybe. Could he have said it right after it? Possibly. But when he said it, there was a great illuminating visual where people were dancing and singing and playing music. And he tells them, I am the light of the world in a very dark place where the light is now shining all over Jerusalem because of these big torches. Secondly, the Old Testament speaks of God as light many, many times. God is the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, by day and the pillar of fire at night who led them out of Egypt. And when they left Egypt and Egypt was trying to sack them at night, God was that light between them and Egypt. You will not come near my people. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 119.105, the Lord's word is a lamp. It is a light to my feet. Isaiah 60, verse 20, God says, there'll be no more sun and moon. I will be your everlasting light. One more, Isaiah 42, verses six and seven. God promises a servant who will come and he will be a light to the nations. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will take those out of the darkness of the dungeon and remove them out. Light is an incredible picture of Jesus Christ because it speaks of his revelation of truth. And John is so concerned with this. No one has ever seen God, John 1:18, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Not just the revelation, but the saving truth. Doesn't just tell you, he actually can take care of you and rescue you from your sins. Can I get a witness? Jesus as light. Have you, for those of you who believe, for those of you who do believe, how amazing is it that you can actually know God the Father now? that you can be assured that your sins have been taken care of on the cross because Jesus Christ has revealed himself. God has revealed himself through his son. He is the light, the saving, revelatory light of this world. Now, this should be a cause for celebration, right? We should be breaking out the non-alcoholic bubbly and we should be having a great time. This is, this, he's here. Open our eyes. Take us out of the dungeon. This is so exciting. But that's not what happens. Kind of round two here of how people respond to Jesus' proclamation. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you were bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. Oh, doesn't count. Nope, you gotta go back to start, start over. It's like playing a board game with somebody who starts making up rules. Nope, nope, doesn't count, doesn't count. It's invalid. And they totally just throw his authority out the window. Another tactic the world might do. Nope, doesn't count. Nope. What makes you right? Nope, you're the only one saying it. No support, no one backing you. Nope, you're out. Here's what Jesus says in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And here's the reason why. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and you do not know where I'm going. For the sake of apologetic purposes, go with me to John 5, 31. This was one of the things that came up in that article that I wrote as a response this week, is people will point out supposed contradictions in scripture and they will try to get you hung up on things. There's an interpretive principle that I gave in that letter and it is this. What the author said and the way the author meant it is true. 
what he said, when he wrote it, when he meant it, that is what's true. So we have to understand the author on his own terms. And when we do that, we will see scripture as not contradictory. Sometimes people emphasize one person over the group. Sometimes they tell you the story with the whole group. It's true in the way they emphasize it. I'll give you an example. 531, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Did you see what just happened? What did he just tell us in eight? He told us the very opposite. If I bear witness about myself, it's true. Here he says, if I bear witness alone, it's not true. And you're like, uh-oh, oh no, is the Bible not true? What do I, we gotta understand the author on the author's own terms, are you ready? Go back one verse, chapter five, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus in this section of John is making very clear, I can do nothing on my own. I speak what I hear, I do what I see. That's it. Nothing I do is outside the Father. Remember, it's the whole Sabbath controversy. Jesus's works is God's works. What God does on the Sabbath, Jesus can do on the Sabbath because he's the son of God that does exactly what he does. So when Jesus now says, if I bear witness alone, he's talking about outside of the context of the Father. So I do nothing of my own, but if I did of my own outside of the Father, then yes, it wouldn't be true. Go back with me now to John 8, verse 14. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Why? For I know where I come from. I know where I'm going because he's connected to the Father and everything he does and says. So when Jesus says these, they're not a contradiction. They're both qualified by how? Jesus being in conjunction with and as an extension of the Father himself. Maybe more than you asked for this morning, but do a lot of reading. And I just want you to be equipped. I want you to be ready. I don't want you to be shaken. People say stuff, even if you don't know the answer, I want you to feel calm and good and go, I know the truth. I don't know the answer, but I know the truth. Pastor Sean, can you help me? No, maybe I can find someone else. Pastor Chuck, can you help me? Right, and we'll help each other out. That's what we're here for. Verse 15, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Wait a second. Jesus doesn't judge anyone now? Wasn't he the judgment who came and he's going to be the judge at the end times? Again, we have to understand the author on his own terms. You judge according to the flesh. That is, you judge according to the fallen man devoid of the Holy Spirit. As D.A. Carson says, you're judging according to human standards. You guys judge without the Spirit. Jesus says, I judge no one. The, 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 the context seems to be this. I judge no one like that. I judge no one according to the way you do. Jesus says this, yet even if I do judge, if Jesus makes any kind of evaluation statement, my judgment is true. Here's the reason why. It's the same answer. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Because everything Jesus does is in complete conjunction with and as an extension of the Father himself. That's why we can trust him. Jesus is now gonna go on to their core. Okay, already in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Let's talk about it in really simple terms. Two people testify to something, yes, it's true. Okay, great, verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. Even then I'm good. I speak, the father speaks, you got two witnesses. What's the whole context? I'm the light of the world. No, you're not, your authority doesn't matter. No, it does because I speak on behalf of God and he affirms me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? All right, where's your dad? Let's go see him and let's go talk to him. (laughs) 
they're missing it. They're stuck in humanistic terms and they're missing the way Jesus is speaking about the heavenly father here. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury. This is where the offerings were put as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is the light, the revelatory saving light of the world and the world just doesn't seem to get it. And they challenge his authority. Jesus is gonna continue the conversation and he goes deeper. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the Father. He will die, he will resurrect, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father from where he was from eternity with the Father. And Jesus says, you will seek me. Are they literally gonna seek him? Where's Jesus? Peekaboo Jesus, where's Jesus? No, they don't care about Jesus. When Jesus says they seek me, what is he talking about? You will seek me, you'll seek Messiah. That's what you're gonna seek. You're gonna seek me, Messiah, that they haven't put the two together yet. And he says, you will die in your sin. Why? Because you seek Messiah, but you miss who it is, Jesus. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Why can't they come to the Father's presence? Because they don't believe in the Son of God, who is the light, the saving light of the world. Listen to their response. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and since we know the gospel and we know Jesus, we read this and go, guys, how could you be so dull? How could you be so off? Jesus kill himself? Like, come on. Pick up a book, guys. Let's go. What's wrong with you? But here's the reality. When you were devoid of the Holy Spirit, you were left to your own. You're on your own to make sense of these things. And it becomes very difficult to do that. Remember what God told us in John 6, what Jesus told us? You can't come to the Father unless he draws you. The fact that you can believe in Jesus, understand scripture, Walk in it is 100% grace of God in your life. Amen? So let us be aware. Let us be careful before we start laughing at anybody. Really, they should pity our hearts to pray for them. Man, they need God's spirit. They need God's drawing, God work in their life. God, help them, please. That article, again, that I have responded to, praying for the one who wrote it. Lord, open this person's eyes. She cited a book about deconstructing Jesus. And it's so not good. Like, Lord, open this guy's eyes. Save these people. They need you. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. And the great way that scripture does parallelism, he's gonna explain what that means. Well, what is below and what is above? You were of this world. I am not of this world. They are from below, which is this world. This world in John is the rebellious world that says no to God. You guys are devoid of the spirit. You're stuck in your sin. You don't get it. But Jesus is from above, not of this world, from the Father's presence. He's hitting again and again where he comes from so they would believe his authority, which comes from the Father. Verse 24, he says, I told you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We will die in our sins unless we believe that Jesus is he. He, he literally says, I am, which is probably smoothed out here rightly as I am he. What does that mean? Unless you believe that I am he. Probably the sense of who I claim to be. 
and I, I was debating whether to walk you through this. I probably won't. But in Isaiah 40 through 55, God says, I am he so many times. Go look it up. It's incredible. I am he. I am he. I am he. With creating, with saving, with forgiving, I am he. I am. So maybe there's this echo, this illusion to the father and his work in Isaiah. I can't say for sure, but it's really neat to think about. Verse 25, so they said to him, well, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, just what I've been saying all along. And you might think, well, why does he just tell them right there? Well, this example hit me this week. For those of you who have children and you give an instruction, you tell them what you're going to do and they come back and ask you again. For example, if you eat all of your dinner, you will get dessert. Can I have dessert? If you eat all of your dinner, I will give you dessert. When can we have dessert? If you eat all your dinner, you may have dessert. Do I have to eat all my dinner? If you will eat your dinner, you will have... At, at what point as a parent do you go, what did I already tell you? What did I already tell you? And I think Jesus, and I'm, go, I'm stretching a little bit. Jesus might be feeling this way. Just what I've been telling you guys all along. Go back and read the manuscript. John 5, the son of man sent from the father, the son of God from the father who does the works of the father. Just what I've been saying. I think it's actually a brilliant answer because what it does is it forces them to go, well, what did he say? And to go look for it and to think about it again and again and to try to figure it out. Oh, he's already told us, but where did he tell us? So I think it's actually a brilliant exposition of Jesus here. Verse 26, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. I got a lot more, Jesus says, to say to them. But here's where you need to sit. Just, just, just right here, just get this point. He says, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Lot to say, lot to judge, but crowd who I'm talking with, here's what you need to do. Just believe and know that what I'm telling you is from God the Father. That's where you need to be. That's where you need to start right now. You need to know that my words are from the Father. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do, not, I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. When will they lift him up? Lifting up is a picture of the cross. In John 3, the serpent was lifted up in the desert. Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Here they are going to lift him up. It's all a picture of the cross here. Through the crucifixion, when they lift him up and they kill him, Jesus says, then you will know that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak as the Father has taught me. The cross event, the crucifixion of the Son of God will be a revelation to these people and to the world that Jesus truly is following the will and the grace of God. The Holy Spirit will come and make sure the world understands that. Jesus says in verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying those things, Many believed in him. You'll have to come back next week to understand what belief means here because belief in John can be very fickle. Very fickle. Today we have been blessed to go to part two at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we saw the response to Jesus. It's diverse. And we want to make sure that we stand on the word of God just like Jesus did. We saw him declare he is the light of the world. The light that is revealing God the Father the light that is God's salvation to this world, the light that is approved of and testified to by God himself. God says, yes, this is here. 
And when you believe here, you can be confident and assured that you truly know God and you truly are rescued from your sins. Who doesn't want that affirmation or that, that peace inside them every day to know that? You can have that because Jesus is the light of the world. The biggest call in the scripture is to believe on Jesus as the light of the world. Have you believed upon him? Have you realized the darkness you're in? Turned from your sin and said, save me, O Savior. Save me, O Lord. I believe you died for my sins and you rose from the dead. Rescue me, I am yours. Not just that though. We walk away, we wanna stand on the word of God and we wanna do what Jesus tells us to do. Go with me to Matthew chapter six. I'm sorry, Matthew five, verse 14. Jesus gives us the application here on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 14. He says this, you are the light of the world. We have many names and identities as Christians. We are children of God, but we are also light. And what does light do? Reveals, it tells, it shows, it shines. Jesus tells you what light doesn't do. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. If I can contextualize this modernly, it might say something like this. People don't take their Christianity and shove it in their closets and leave it there and never show the world. No, they walk out with it and they live that out in their businesses. They live that out in their vocations and professions, whether you are a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or a mechanic or a plumber whether you are in the military, whatever you do, we take that light because that's who we are. Because Jesus is the light of the world and he has made us a light too because we have that truth, amen? Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Why does Jesus want them to see your good works? To see the good works that God enables you and gives you to do. So God is glorified. That's our goal that God would be honored and he'd be glorified. And when God is most glorified, I think his people are most edified. When God is most glorified in worship, we are most at peace and joy and of everything that we need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's go to the Father now. Let's ask him for the grace to be those lights that he has enabled us to be. And then we will continue our worship together. Father, thank you that you have revealed to us truth. We acknowledge we couldn't know it unless you told us. We couldn't believe in it unless you gave us faith. We can't walk in it without your continued grace of your spirit in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the great gospel of light. Bless that light to go deep into our hearts to realize who we know, who we follow, and how powerful and important and wonderful it is. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for not shining the light, maybe not walking in it, not understanding it. Lord, Help us. We are yours, and we pray that we could be your children that live in an honorable way. Lord, save the lost here. Lord, save your people here this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.